everyone, and welcome to this special OSSERT conference podcast. I'm Patrick Gray. Our coverage of OSSERT's 2010 conference is brought to you exclusively by Microsoft Forefront. For all our coverage of OSSERT's 2010 conference, go to risky.biz slash feeds and subscribe to the RB2 feed and you'll get all of our podcasts. In this podcast, you'll hear a presentation by Frank Stiano of the University of Cambridge. In it, he discusses seven principles for system security derived from understanding scams and scam victims. He argues that by understanding the recurring behavioural patterns of victims that hustlers have learned to exploit, we can create systems that are more resistant to fraud. Now, Frank plays three videos in this talk, and with two of them you can get by with audio alone. But the first one has a significant visual component. The good news is I found that video on YouTube and I've linked to it from the post for this audio. So you'll hear me during this presentation say something along the lines of, check out that video now. So you can pause the MP3 and watch the video. It sounds a bit involved, I know, but it's the only way I could think of to bring this presentation to you at, at, at full quality. So here it is. Enjoy. So welcome. Very happy to be uh, telling you about this exciting research we did last year. My co-author is a very interesting chap. He's a magician among many other skills, and he knows everything about sleight of hand tricks, and he knows how people scam casinos in Las Vegas and all that kind of stuff. It's been really good fun working with Paul on this. Understanding scam victims, seven principles for system security. So the problem we are trying to address is that the security engineers uh, try to build defenses for systems, uh, imagining uh, the system works in the way they think, and instead what happens is the real users of the system don't follow the engineer. Instead what happens is the real users of the system don't follow the engineer's logic. And because of this mismatch between what users do and what system designers think they might do, uh, then the systems are vulnerable to attack. So how do we set about addressing this problem? So our solution to that is to try and understand the psychology of the victims, and who better understands the psychology of the victims than the fraudsters, those who actually manage to exploit it for their own profit. So the purpose of this study is to understand from the fraudsters what is it that users actually do, and from that build stronger system defenses. So among his many virtues, my co-author, Paul, is uh, the co-writer of a TV series in the UK called The Real Hustle, which is great fun. So what they do is they look at scams that happen in the real world, and they recreate them under controlled conditions with unsuspecting victims and hidden cameras rigged around the place. And then when they've robbed the, the, all the money of the poor victim, they, they send the BBC crew in to say, you know, what just happened? Can you describe what happened? And the guy's like, yeah, I lost all my money. Ah. And they say, yeah, don't worry, don't worry. It was us with hidden cameras. And we, here's your money back. And by the way, can we show this on TV so that other people don't fall for the same scam? So this is uh, required watching for my PhD students in security because it's, it's done by people from a totally different background, but it's really the same way that I view security should be done. So that's how I hooked up with... Paul and we did this uh, work together. So there's three contributions to our work in here. One is documenting existing scans. And this is largely the work that Paul and his co-authors have done on the TV show. They've recreated hundreds of scams and documented how people fall for them and film them on, show them on national television. The second point 
out of these hundreds of scams, they, they're not all totally original. Many of them exploit the same trick over and over again. And so some abstraction process, trying to get out the core of uh, what's underlying uh, many of these scams. This is something we did, I'm going to talk about, extracting several principles out of this, which explain uh, vulnerabilities um, that are inherent in the human psychology. And thirdly, applying the knowledge of these principles to strengthen system security. This is something that was uh, totally original with respect to the previous stuff about just looking at small-scale scams. So this uh, work is in a paper, um, in, a, in a tech report of the University of Cambridge that's in your USB stick. And if you go and read through the paper, it's also on my webpage. If you just Google my name and surname, you'll find my webpage, you'll find that. Uh, we summarized a number of these scams. So each line here is one scam that was shown on the TV series. This says uh, series one, episode one, series four, episode five, and so on and so on. So they've done hundreds. We've summarized about a dozen in, in their paper. And the, the, the columns here, the vertical lines, are instead the principles that we extract from the scams. And where there's a black dot, it means this scam uses this principle as the main thing. And where there's a white dot, it means this also uses this principle, though it's not one of the main things. And of course, I would have no time in 35 minutes to go through all of this matrix. But I'm just going to show you a few lines and highlight how the main black dots apply to them. So first off is the Monty, the, where you have the three cars or three disks or three shells. I'm sure many of you would be familiar with this. And the best way to introduce you to that is to show you a clip from the actual TV series. Uh, now, this is where Frank plays his first video. It's called The Real Hustle, The Monty. And you can find a link to that video on risky.biz slash ossert. Uh, just find the post for this podcast. But you can just listen to the audio from the video here if you don't have YouTube handy. But yeah, if you want to see the video, now is the time to do that. Alex has got a game for you to play at home. All you have to do is watch the disc with the white spot. Where is it? In the middle? No. You've just been caught by one of the oldest tricks in the book. The Monty. Our three hustlers have come to the seaside to perform the Monty scam for our concealed cameras and to teach us the tricks behind this classic con. Even though the Monty is illegal, it is still played by hustlers all over the UK today. Our team have engaged the services of some local hustlers to help them out. They'll all be looking for a wealthy target, known as the Mark, to play the game. This passerby seems interested. He's their man. He's the Mark. Unknown to him, everyone else playing the game is in on it. It looks to our mark like Jess has just won some money, but remember, she's in on it like everybody else. Jess is using her feminine charms to win over the mark and convince him to bet with her money. Loser, you got some money? Anyone else got some money? Oh, I think, uh, hey, you gotta stay here. Yeah, you're back. 
great. Our mark is going to play with Jesse's money. Okay, look, watch, watch. Look, look, watch, watch. One, two, three. That's all I'm doing. That one there, that one there. That's so simple. Yeah, easy. Hang on, hang on. Is she helping you out? Because I'm getting all the best from you. With Jesse's help, the mark is now a winner. Shall I give it straight to your girlfriend? Seriously. <laughs> You got some money on you. If you yeah, go to stay, right. you're gonna have to pay. Come you got some money? Yeah, come on. We'll Give you money. Fifty. I'll take a fifty. Alex and Jess have hooked him in, and now he's gonna play with his own money. Fifty pounds. Ready? You ready? I'm gonna do it nice and slow. Keep your eye on the middle one, yeah. That's all you gotta keep your eye on. That one there, because that one, that's a loser, right? This one, that's a loser, right? <laughs> Now it's time for Paul's part in the scam. While Alex turns away to cough, Paul switches two of the discs, apparently moving the spotted disc back to the middle. Our mark thinks Paul is trying to trick Alex, but in fact, it's all part of the bigger scam to convince the mark to bet. And it works perfectly. Everybody else joins in and bets as well. So our mark won't feel so bad when he loses. Half of you are right, but all of you are wrong. Please. Thank you. To solve people winning money, you just kind of think, oh, well, I'll have a piece of that. It's just kind of thought, it's definitely the one in the middle, it has to be. I thought this guy's giving it away or something. It was like, it's so easy. You can't win at this game. You know, the guy's, the guy's an expert. They're all experts, just stay away. I was blagged, big time, big time. We each have different roles, and they're all very different. I'm the operator, I handle the discs, and ultimately I'm the one who's going to have to do the sleight-of-hand moment. Jessie is used as a decoy, and as a roper, she gets the mark in, she gets into the right position, which is right at the front of the queue. What she does, which is very important in the very beginning, is she gives the mark a taste, a feel of what it's like to win money. So she hands the money over for him to bet it for her. Paul is our general lookout man. He's also responsible for the switch. The mark now thinks that, wow, I've beaten him. I've beaten the Monty man. I can put my money down. So that's a very interesting uh, introduction to this business. And you can see there is a, a trick, a sleight of hand move that the Monty operator performs in order to switch the discs. You could see everybody was betting on the disc that they thought was the right one and said it wasn't. How did he do that? Well, I can show you that later if we have time, although with 35 minutes, I doubt it. But if I have an extra minute at the end, I'll show you. Uh, however, many people believe that the Monty game is the sleight of hand move. That's a total fallacy. What happens is that the Monty is all the street theater around it. The Monty is the fact that everybody except the guy who's being fleeced is in on it, right? So if you actually know this move and you know where the disc is going, that doesn't mean you're going to win if you bet on the right disc. Because what's, what the uh, other guys are going to do is, okay, once they notice you're on the correct disc, they're going to have another one of the accomplices to put more money on another disc. So the operator feels compelled, obliged. Well, I have to take the bigger bet, of course. And then at that point, you lose, and you realize you have to put even more money the next time around. And that's when they fleece you properly. And even if you um, are there busy looking at the game and so on, uh, what's going to happen is that they're going to pick your wallet as well. So as other accomplices who take other strategies during that. So, the bottom line is you can't beat the game because it's not a game. As my co-author, Paul, says, it's just a polite way of mugging people. 
So we extract from this uh, first principle, I'm going to write out the principles here in this light green bar, the distraction principle. While you are distracted by what retains your interest, hustlers can do anything to you, and you won't notice. Okay? This is something that is at the basis of innumerable scams, and any time some sleight of hand is performed, you will see the hustlers actually distracting you and bringing your attention to something else. And this is done in many realms, uh, of course, all of pickpocketing, but even magic. I told you that Paul was also a, a professional magician, and of course, the point of magic is to direct your attention somewhere else while uh, the hand that's quicker than the eye does its business. Uh, distraction is the whole point for having a sexy swindler as part of the team. And um, if you are in this business of um, security research, for the past 10 years there's been a, a group of people looking at the interaction between security and usability. That's a very important topic. And this is a you know, perfect case here of application of the distraction principle. So for example, you have the system administrators who put uh, all sorts of barriers against bad guys logging into your system, and you have the real users who just see all these barriers, uh, complex logins, policies for changing passwords and SSH and access control of all kinds, as just things that get in their way for accessing the files that they need, for example, giving a pres presentation at all cert, and so they just want to get out of the way so they are not embarrassed when they cannot access their uh, slides or whatever. And so the lock that is inconvenient is left open by the user, and that's where the smart uh, crook is going to go look for. If, if a lock is very complicated, then probably that's where I can get in. I have a wonderful story told by Frank Abagnale. Uh, Frank Abagnale is the guy who was portrayed by Leonardo DiCaprio in um, Catch Me If You Can. And it's actually a real person who did most of the things in the movie. That's based on his, his biography. And so he says, well, he went to prison like happened at the end of the movie, and then after that he was you know, reformed and helped the FBI and blah, blah, and now makes a lot of money as a security consultant. So in his new life as a security consultant, uh, he wrote more books, and, and he says, in 1999 I was doing a consultancy job for some, um, I think it was a big bank or something like that, uh, and they were busy fixing this uh, Y2K problem, remember Y2K? So they had legions of programmers uh, messing around with their COBOL systems and all that kind of bullshit. And so I said, I didn't know you had that many programmers. And the, the CIO, CSO, CTO, all these uh, three-letter people uh, said, you know, we actually don't have that many programmers. But uh, let me see if I have the exact quote from his book. It says, uh, uh, they're actually contractors that we got. Oh, these guys from India, they're really sharp, and they're cheap. So Abagnale thinks to himself, their thinking was these guys know computers, and they're inexpensive, as were a lot of other offshore firms from India, Russia, and Taiwan that were fixing Y2K problems. But I knew any dishonest programmer could easily implant a so-called backdoor. So you don't have to just be a gullible user, one of these people that say, you know, Nobody would fall for Nigerian 419 scams. It's obvious that these are all fake. But you can be a three-letter uh, C star O and still fall for something if you're distracted into thinking that your main priority is just fixing the Y2K. I mean, the, there was a um, previous speaker this morning who said the priority was not security, but the go-live date. And that's exactly it. They're distracted by that, and therefore uh, you can do whatever you want to them. Meanwhile, 
Another principle we can extract from this uh, Monty clip is the herd principle, we call it. That's, you know, even suspicious marks will let their guard down when others next to them appear to share the same risks. Everybody's doing it, then it must be all right. So finding safety in numbers, except it's not really safety in numbers if everybody else is in against you, as it was in the Monty setup, and sometimes it is. So um, what happens is that, um, you know, if you look at uh, systems where uh, things go uh, seem to go well for everybody else, this enhances the confidence of the person who's going to be tricked in for the scam. And the, the other people are called convincers. You know, they show you that something goes well, then it must be good for you too. But sometimes it works in the other way. So you have someone who's just been scammed, and you put some other shields, some other decoys, uh, for whom it also goes bad. They also get scammed. And you, then the guy doesn't feel so bad about being the only idiot who's been scammed. I mean, you know, yeah, we've also been robbed, but this is, this is the Sicilian mafia. We'd better not report to the police, otherwise we're going to have our uh, legs cut off or something like that. So um, they, uh, the fact of having other people follow your exact fate works both, works both ways. And in uh, computer systems, in online uh, systems, uh, you can have a similar phenomenon. All these terms, sock puppets is something that's used in online communities where people make fake identities for themselves to appear that other people share your opinion and it makes it a more popular opinion than other people say, ah, I guess he must be right because there's another 15 people saying the same thing where it's only this guy. Astroturfing is used in um, the context of political campaigns when someone wants to pretend that there's grassroots support for a political candidate who is instead unpopular. That's, that's a pun on astroturfing. It's a kind of artificial plastic grass. And Sibyls, that's used in peer-to-peer -peer systems when uh, people, again, make fake identities so that they get more of their fair share of the uh, resource that's on offer. And the very fact that there are so many terms to describe the same phenomenon should be an indication for you that essentially every multi-user system is affected by this phenomenon. So let me move on to another video so that I can illustrate three more principles. And the video we look at this time is going to be the ring reward ripoff. Ring reward ripoff now. They've chosen a quiet pub with a male barman that Jess can work her feminine charms on. Meet our victim. He'll be known as the Mark. Just a normal working day pulling pints for him. Well, so far. Jess enters the bar to get the scam into action. Her mission is to get friendly with the mark. It's a bit quiet in there, isn't it? Yeah, well, this way the, the stereo is busted, apparently. The stereo? Yeah. Oh, dear. It still sounds a bit... But I'm really sorry. Have you got change for 50? Yeah. I'm ever so sorry. It's all I've got. I've only got 50. It's not a fake one, is it? No, I promise it isn't. <laughs> I promise. It's my birthday, so I've got a lot of money. Yeah. Thank you. Pulling out the £50 note is all part of the plan. Now the Mark knows two things. She's wealthy and it's her birthday. Hello. Now Jess is joined by a friend for a drink. She is playing the role of the accomplice. Watch how she allows our hustler to bring up the star of this scam, the sparkling ring. What did I get? 
Nice, isn't it? That is really nice. It's the one that I wanted. How much was it? Three and a half grand. Three and a half grand. <laughs> Notice how a five-pound ring from the market has been given a big markup and in full earshot of the barman. She's taking me out. She's not telling me about. Why do I have a spin? The girls launch their charm offensive. This is known as the honey trap. It will make the mark putty in their hands. I would just ask. Sorry, what's your name? Drew. Drew. I'm Jessica. This is Alex. Just Drew will be my stripper, won't you, Drew? <laughs> 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 Let's get him some more pints and then he can come and be our stripper. <laughs> now the mark's been caught in Jessie's honey trap and knows the price tag of the birthday ring, the first phase of the scam is complete and they leave the pub. Thank you. Hugh, Alex and Paul. They are posing as a couple of mates having a drink, but it's their goal to get the barman to willingly hand over some cash from the till. The next move is for Jess to make the phone call to the pub. Hello, Hi, can I speak to Drew, please? To Drew? Yeah. Hi, Drew, this is Jessica. I was in here earlier with uh, my friend hey. Alex. Hi. Um, listen, I had a ring on me today. It was um, silver with a diamond in it. Um, I, I don't know if you saw it. I had it at the bar with me. It was in a black yeah. box. Yeah, listen, I can't find the ring anywhere. I must have dropped it somewhere. Or it's, it just, it's come out of its box. I just wonder if anyone hands um, anything yeah. in. Um, no, but just hang on a second. By using his name, Jess is talking to the mark as if he's a trusted friend. This is all part of the plan to ensure he'll help her out. Paul's confessed that he's found the ring, but he's not giving it up so easily. He wants to know what's in it for him. We'll ask if there's a reward. It's a big bloody diamond. Well, come on, it's her 21st birthday. Well, I don't know. Ask if there's a reward. Yeah. You've got it. You've got it? Yeah. Oh my god, thank you so much. Where, whereabouts was it? Uh, it was on the floor actually. Um, someone, someone's found it. Someone's found it? Oh my god, and, thank uh, you. Listen, oh god, listen, just tell them I'll give them a £200 reward, whoever it is. I really will. I've been so panicky. I've been looking absolutely everywhere for it. Yeah. Oh my god. With Jess promising to return to the pub with the reward, the mark should now play directly into the hustler's hands. Oh, wow, but, yeah, I mean, come on, if you take it to Barney, you give you money for it. She's got uh, 20 quid for it. 20 quid? 20 quid. As the hustlers were hoping, the barman has lied to them and said Jess is offering just £20 reward for the ring. This means he's definitely on the hook. He wants to make some money out of this situation. So shortly, he'll be offering to buy the ring. Come on, it's like, if, if I had lost that, I'd want more money than that. I mean, come on. Really? Yeah, come on. That's a beautiful ring. I don't know anything about rings, but that's got to be worth a lot. Can I really? You have to go. Come 50 on. quid. If we, if we were dishonest, we'd have taken it by now. Well, I didn't even have to ask her for a reward. She said, look, I'll give, him, I'll give whoever that person is 20 quid. 50 quid. 50 quid would be better. I reckon, yeah, 50 quid. With some hard persuasion from our con men, the mark agrees to £50 and gets it from the till. And he hands over the same note Jess paid with just a little earlier. Nice. You're doing the right thing. So, in the part that I didn't show you because we are out of time, they actually first bought the 
uh, ring at the market for about three pounds. Uh, and in the part after that, there's a guy who uh, just came out of prison, and he says, you know, this is a scam that really works. We once made 2,000 pounds with that. So the principle we extract from this, we call the dishonesty principle. It's actually two sides to it. One thing is that your larceny is what hooks you. And second part is anything illegal you do will be used against you by the fraudster. So as far as the first part, you know, you couldn't run this ring scam unless the guy was a bit crooked, unless the, the barman actually wanted to go for 20 pounds instead of 200 pounds, because otherwise you could just put them in touch with each other and say, okay, well, she'll, he'll return the ring to you and blah, blah. But if he wants, to, he wants in, then that's when you can sell him the worthless ring. And that's for the first part. As far as the second part goes, uh, once you have been tricked into doing something bad, then the hustlers can use that so that you can't go and call for help. How many of you have seen the movie Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels? Right. The, it's not the main part of the plot, but you may remember at some point when, when all the guys were uh, looking for some money because otherwise the, the, big, uh, uh, the big shot was going to uh, send in the killer for them, uh, they think of one scam where he says, okay, let's make a classified ad in a gay magazine, and uh, we are a company called Bobby's Bits, and we sell the best anal vibrators there are. And we say, this is you know, something new, just imported from America, wonderful sensations, whatever it is that you write in gay magazines, adverts. Uh, and then people start selling us uh, checks to Bobby's Bits for 40 pounds or however much each vibrator costs. And then, at some point, we write them a polite letter saying, we're sorry, but we didn't get as much shipment as we requested, and so we cannot fulfill all the orders. So we return your check, uh, we re refund your 40 pounds, and instead you send them a check from another company named R. Stickler's Faggots Fan Club, uh, which uh, pretty much makes sure that nobody's going to go to their bank and cash the check. So uh, the interesting part is that in this, case, in this case, the victim wasn't even doing anything illegal. It's just something somewhat shameful, let's say. Uh, and the fact that they were doing it is then used against them by the fraudster. And th there's a million other examples. The, the, the classic 419 Nigerian scam is one where you, know, you do something and you're expected to get you know, 20 million uh, from this Nigerian prince who needs to uh, uh, you know, uh, export his money from uh, this uh, terrible country. And, you know... It looks really good. But at the back of your mind, however stupid you are, you realize it's not really all clean. You realize you're doing some money laundering. And therefore, when you find that you have lost all your money in advance fees, you can't easily go to the police because you say, and why were you sending these things to Nigeria exactly? You say, ah, because I was doing money laundering. And then they arrest you. There's people who actually killed themselves because they did, they, you know, they'd lost all their house, all their savings, and they didn't know how to go for help. It's really, really sad, but anyway, we can still have a good laugh. <laughs> so... If you are a systems uh, designer, then what should you do by knowledge of the dishonesty principle? Well, think about it. You know, there's been a breach in your network. Some people have gone in from inside, from, from outside, and maybe there was some insider, you know, clicking on some Trojan horse that purported to show you free porn and all that kind of stuff. Do you actually want to go to the bottom of it, know how your system was infected, or do you want to be upright? And if anybody looks at porn on company computers, they will be named and shamed. Well, you have to choose one or the other. If you want to complete your investigation, then consider, um, consider uh, giving an amnesty to the people who might actually give you the information. 
Another thing that's related to the distraction principle is the need and greed principle. We usually, we began by just calling it the greed principle. And then we said it's not just greed. Greed has a kind of bad connotation, but sometimes it's not that bad necessarily. And most of the things that are included in dishonesty are also featured as a need and greed principle application, but not all of them. So some, um, some things, you know, the stuff that you can't really do without, um, you, are not necessarily because you are slightly dishonest. For example, uh, in another uh, scam that I won't be able to show you the video for, there's a uh, guy who's uh, in his 20s playing guitar, and the hustlers say, I can get you an audition. There's going to be like an audience like this, 200 people listening to you playing the guitar. And he says, yeah, where do I sign? And he gives me lots of money. And instead, all they do is you know, put the, all their equipment in a van, and they run off with the van with all their uh, amplifiers and guitars and leave them there like that. So uh, you can scam anyone if you know what they want. And the trouble for, you know, the lesson for system designers is that system designers usually don't give a shit about what users really want. And so they just prescribe that users should behave in a certain way. And they are then sadly surprised when users behave a different way and their system then gets compromised. Another principle we can learn from this uh, ring um, scam is the time principle. This is a, a very subtle and technical uh, psychological issue. When you are under time pressure to make an important choice, like where do you go, uh, you use a different decision strategy than the one that actually optimizes everything. And the hustlers, although they haven't taken any courses in psychology, understand this intuitively and steer you towards a strategy that involves less reasoning. So I've been discussing this with a friend of mine who's a neuropsychiatrist, the kind of guy who puts people in fMRI machines and see which part of the brains uh, light up when they do various things. And he's pointing me at a number of studies that just uh, explain that Real-world organisms, and we are not just talking about human organisms, don't behave like economists make you believe, you know, optimizing all the choices and you know, taking rational uh, decisions. They just uh, adapt to satisfy, take something that's good enough. Because if you try to optimize, maybe in the meantime, the dinosaur might uh, come and eat you out. So uh, evolution has ensured that organisms prefer to satisfy with heuristics. But sometimes the heuristics uh, may fail. And so uh, what should you be doing if you're a system designer? Well, maybe you can wrap the time pressure situations into a human-level protocol, which takes the pressure out of the human and puts it into inflexible rules, the kind of stuff that military people do when they say, if there is a command to launch a nuclear missile, don't just sit there and decide, do I think this is really the, the good good guy sending me the command, do I have to obey that? Will my conscience uh, say something if I press the button and obliterate uh, a few hundred million people? Um, never mind that. There's a protocol that says what you do. Okay, you insert the key. If it verifies, then the other guy inserts the key, blah, blah. And just take the pressure out of the human. You can't expect the human to work out the right solution with a heuristic in a time-sensitive uh, situation. So the final movie, do we have a time for a final movie, or do you want me to cut it off? Okay, final movie. The jewelry shop scam. This is actually our shortest. The hustlers have selected a small high street jewelers as the perfect place to stage this scam. Unbeknown to the shop staff, our hidden cameras have been placed inside to cover the following action. Jess enters the shop first, looking well dressed and respectable. Hi. Oh, so cold. <laughs> I'm looking for 
a necklace. She approaches the counter and talks to the staff about wanting to buy a new necklace. Silver. Alex comes into the shop shortly after. He is apparently just another browsing shopper. And where's the third member of our team? Paul is outside ready to step in on cue. Got a nice one here. After some browsing, they show Jess a necklace that takes her fancy. That's, yeah, that's the sort of length. Yeah, nice How length. much is this one? It's quite expensive, actually. Six. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's really the necklace is worth around £600, which is a suitable bit of swag for this scam. Jess seems happy with the choice and says she'll buy it. As she finishes counting the notes, Alex swoops in. Okay, stop there, police. What? Welcome to the police. Tracy, I'm placing you under arrest for deception and fraud. Leave that money on the counter. Please let my colleague in, please. Flashing a fake police badge, he arrests Jess for passing counterfeit money. Will the shopkeepers buy his act? We've been following her all day. There's been counterfeit cash. She's been passing it off for jewellers. Yeah, go ahead. The shocked shopkeepers have bought his line and the hook and sink it too. The hustlers insist the cash is forged and must be bagged as evidence. In fact, it's the gang's own hustle bankroll and it's actually not forged at all. All go in for evidence for her. I'm afraid that's part of the evidence as well now. You will get it back, obviously. And there it is. Alex the fake copper has convinced the shopkeeper to bag up the £600 necklace as well. I Pop that in here. Thank you. It's all going to plan. With the necklace bagged, the scam is complete. Our team of hustlers have cleverly choreographed a theft worth £600 from right under their noses. Bitch, you could have cost me my job, you know that. Yeah. The hustlers leave the shop, claiming yeah. to be off Sorry. to the police station. Okay. I'll be back in an hour. I'm going to take a full statement from you. Because obviously it'll go down as evidence for her, yeah? Had this been a real scam, it would have been the last time the shopkeepers ever saw their expensive necklace. Bitch, you could have cost me my job, you know that. <laughs> so, an important principle to get out of this is the social compliance principle. Okay, society trains people not to question authority. Hustlers exploit this suspension of suspiciousness to manipulate you. Just dress up as a policeman and act as a policeman and they'll behave to you as they do towards a policeman. It doesn't have to be just a policeman. It can be anybody in a position of authority, in a position to make you do something like, you know, park your car, give me the keys to your car, I drive off, okay. So there's, again, a gazillion examples we could give about the fact that people suspend judgment when they are confronted with a figure of authority. You may have heard of this uh, Milgram experiment where people give electric shocks of 300 volts to people just because the guy in a white coat tells them to do that. And they do. Uh, and the lesson here for the system designers is that, you know, you, uh, you have to basically align the stuff you want people to do with the rewards and incentives. And if you say to people, okay, you're falling for these scams, you're falling for phishing, you are doing all that stuff, you're not doing the proper checks, then you must make it uh, okay for them to do the checks. So you cannot have, at the same time, don't question authority. If I tell you to do something, then do it. And then say, ah, you didn't check, because you can't have it both ways. 
And the other final principle we get out of this is the deception principle, which is a very generic thing. Practically all scams are some forms of deception. And again, there's many examples in systems. And particularly, there are some times where the technical people make it possible to do some check, but it is only technically possible. It is not something that regular users can actually do. For example, you're supposed to be able to check that the site is the right site because of HTTPS, but nobody understands the first thing about certificates. And the people who even build the websites don't even understand it themselves. And if they would, uh, they would at least put the same name as their bank in the URL that you go to actually log in, which they usually don't. So uh, the lesson here is don't blame the users if really they don't stand a fighting chance of actually doing the right thing. So blame yourselves for designing a crap system. So the conclusions here, uh, first of all, is uh, I summarize our three contributions. We have recreated and documented hundreds of scams. Uh, the second point is we extracted seven principles about the victim's behavior. And I don't want to make our seven principles sound as like the be all and end all. They are probably not. Uh, covering the whole space of things. The important thing is to extract some principles. And you can look at the literature for other principles, which I won't go into because I'm already over time. But the point is just, just abstract away from it. And once you have abstracted away, then try to see how to apply this to systems level protection. So that's my final slide. If you forget everything I said, then just remember this thing. My take home message is that you cannot make a secure system unless you pay some attention to the inherent vulnerabilities of the human element of your system. And the fraudsters have proved to be better psychologists than the system designers so far, and we must play catch up. And it is arrogantly idiotic to whinge that users are gullible because they don't do things the way you tell them to do. And what you tell them to do is usually the equivalent of saying, and while you log in, you must walk like this, OK? So if you walk like this and you log in, the system will be secure. And they may be able to do this the first time, maybe the second time. But after that, they'll start walking like this, because that's how their DNA tells them to walk. So certain behavioral patterns are human nature. And smart system designers will work with knowledge of the fact that users will behave that way no matter what you tell them and prevent the exploitation of these weaknesses. Thank you very much.